Good evening and welcome to worship. Our call to worship this evening comes from Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live, I will lift up my hands in thy name. Our scripture reading this evening comes from the Gospel of John, John chapter 16, and we'll be reading uh, the entire chapter. John chapter 16. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. This is Jesus speaking, and he's he continues, They shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said unto you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you unto all truth. And he shall not speak of himself, but whatever, whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me. And, because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, What is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of what I said? A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament. But the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. 
But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, thou now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. It is the night of Jesus' arrest and trial. Jesus and the disciples have just celebrated the Passover. Judas has just gone off to complete his betrayal of Jesus. And Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're gathered in the upper room, engaged in what is commonly called the upper room discourse. And in our Bibles, we find this discourse recorded in the Gospel of John from chapters 14 uh, through chapter 17. And throughout these, these chapters, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He is plainly talking to them and he's wishing to prepare his disciples for what shortly is going to happen. And he engages in this discourse, not only so that they would be prepared, but so that when they are experiencing his arrest and crucifixion, they would be able also to draw consolation and comfort from his words. And as you look through these chapters, you you see some familiar things. Jesus tells his disciples that he is the way. He tells them that he is the truth and that he is the life. We read about in the beginning of chapter 16 how he promises that when he leaves them, he will send the Holy Spirit to be with them. He tells them that he is the true vine and he urges them to to abide in him. And he urges them to, to love one another. He prepares them for persecution and the hatred they are going to receive from the world. And in the passage we're looking at tonight, he tells them that soon they will no longer see him and that they will weep and lament. And as we look over these verses, as we look at what Jesus is saying, you'll notice that when Jesus speaks, he's, he's using very simple language. When Jesus is speaking here to his disciples, he's using plain language. He's using easy to, to understand words. But the disciples, as we see in this passage as well, they, they don't understand what Jesus is saying. Now, I have a, a somewhat similar experience daily in my office. Um, I currently have an office that's among other offices that are occupied by real estate and business investors. 
And if I don't have headphones on or earbuds in, I can sometimes hear them talking and it, it's something similar to what the disciples have. I, I, I don't understand exactly what they're talking about. Their language, although, tends to be a, a little bit more complicated, but they are speaking English. But they're using terms such as CAM or IRR or net present value or, or cap rates. And even though this is in English, it may as well be in a foreign language because I have no idea what they're talking about. Now, this isn't a perfect illustration because Jesus isn't using terms that his disciples aren't familiar with. But he is speaking of things that are totally foreign to the disciples. Jesus, as I said, is using simple to understand language. But what Jesus is telling the disciples is, is so different from their, their understanding, is so different from their current notions of Jesus' plan and what the future looks like for them, that it goes right over their heads. It is almost as if Jesus is speaking a foreign language to them. Now this evening, we're going to be looking specifically at these words of Jesus from this last part of the Upper Room Discourse. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 33. And our sermon this evening is titled, Consolation for the Days of he- Days Ahead. And Jesus is telling the disciples, he's telling them that you will not see me and you will be devastated. And he's telling them, you will again see me, you will see me again and rejoice. And also in these verses, he's telling them, you will understand and have peace. Jesus tells his disciples, a little while and ye shall not see me. And verses 17 and 18 make clear that the disciples don't understand this. They don't understand what Jesus is saying here. In these verses... Um, The disciples say, then said some of his disciples among themselves, what is this that he saith unto us? A little while, then you shall not see me. What is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now, Jesus is saying that he is going away. He is going away. And some commentators believe that what Jesus is here speaking about going away, he's, he's referring to his ascension well, when he's going to ascend into, other, into heaven. And others even believe that somehow this is referring both to his resurrection from the dead, or both to his death and to his ascension. But if you read through these verses, you'll see that the context and the fact that the disciples will be weeping and lamenting when he goes away makes it clear that what Jesus is speaking about of here is his death. Jesus is telling his disciples that he is going to die, that he is going to leave them, and that this will cause them to be greatly sorrowful. Now, it's not like the disciples don't understand anything that's going on here. They do understand a little bit because in verse 6, but also here in in verse 22, there appears to be some comprehension. Where Jesus speaks of the disciples already sorrowing over his departure. But overall, the disciples do not fully understand, they do not comprehend what will happen in the next few hours. What the disciples are about to experience will be the most devastating event of their lives. They aren't just going to experience the tragic and unjust murder of their beloved master. 
But their whole world is going to come crashing down around them. Because what these disciples are expecting out of life, what they are expecting to happen, and what they will immediately experience are vastly different. These disciples are expecting a glorious future, ruling with Christ in his new kingdom. And while there is an aspect of that this future reality, while it is true that that this is a future reality for the disciples and for all believers, the disciples' specific expectations were not of a spiritual and heavenly kingdom, but were of an earthly and temporal one. And we see as Jesus ministered to the disciples, as he taught them throughout his ministry, they struggled to understand what Jesus taught. They struggled to understand the gospel truths that Jesus had been teaching them. And before we calm down too hard on the disciples, we must remember that we too struggle with this. We have God's word He gives us the gospel in plain language, and the gospel is simple. And it shouldn't be hard to understand, yet we struggle so much, not only to understand it, but we struggle to believe it. Our own legalistic or sin-accepting notions intermingle and corrupt our understandings of Christ's gospel. And so it is throughout Jesus' ministry when he communicates the gospel to his disciples. When he tells them what he will do, they're always misunderstanding his words or, or, or not understanding them at all. And yes, it is true that Jesus is here using figurative language. But the main reason that the disciples don't understand what he is saying is because what Jesus is saying to them is so otherworld to them. What Jesus is saying to them is like nothing they have ever heard. It's contrary to how they are wired. Now the disciples at this point are baby Christians. Their hearts have been changed, but they still know so little of the gospel. They do not fully understand it. They don't understand what Jesus must do. And so we too, we hear the gospel. We too find it hard to understand. We find it difficult to believe because it's so contrary to how we normally think. It's so contrary to how we are wired. We, too, like the disciples, are either too earthly-minded, wanting to establish our, our own kingdom here, or making up a gospel that's based upon our own efforts and, and based upon our, our own works. And even as believers, we often struggle to, to understand, to fully understand the gospel. Somehow we again end up not trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, not trusting what he says about himself and what he says about us. We think that God's love for us changes like the wind, that he loves us when we feel it, and that he doesn't love us when we don't feel it. We somehow think that we need to merit his favor with our good works, thus bringing us into bondage again to the law. When good works don't merit salvation, they're done out of joy and thankfulness for what Christ has done in our lives. They're done out of thankfulness for his wonderful work of salvation. And we too, like the disciples, we find it hard to understand the simple gospel. So when Christ speaks about his suffering and death, when Jesus talks about going away and coming again, about the disciples suffering and enduring persecution, it doesn't even register in their minds or hearts. 
They hardly fathom what, what Jesus is saying. And therefore, when Christ is arrested, when he's tortured, when he's hung on the cross, their world, their future, their hopes and dreams come crashing down around them. They have lost their rabbi. They have lost their Messiah. Their worldview, what they thought about life, what they thought about religion and the world has been shattered. Doubts start to creep into their minds and maybe they even begin to question everything. They thought everything was going to be great. And it all came crashing down. Maybe we had the same idea when we became Christians. We thought that now that we're Christians, now that I'm a believer, now that I've been converted, everything is going to be great. Everything is going to be smooth sailing. But instead, we got trials. We got crosses to bear. Everything didn't magically turn around. We now have to fight against sin. We now have to deny ourselves, to carry crosses that sometimes feel too heavy. Sometimes it feels just like the disciples here that our world, our life is crashing down around us. And we can only faintly see the gospel. We can only barely cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the bad news for the disciples. But Jesus doesn't only give them bad news here. He says, again, a little while, and ye shall see me. In verse 20, he tells them that their sorrow shall be turned into joy. And in verse 22, he tells them, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Jesus is here telling the disciples that their sorrow will not continue forever, but that their sorrow will turn into joy. And as we look at these verses, we might be tempted in our immediate interpretation of these texts to think that Jesus is speaking here about when he will return on the last day. And although it's true that Jesus will come again on the last day, and that the disciples and all believers will be filled with unspeakable joy, this isn't the event that Jesus is speaking about. He is telling the disciples that they will rejoice when he arises again from the dead. They will rejoice again at the resurrection when they see him. The disciples will rejoice when they see Jesus again. The one whom they lost. The one who meant everything to them. When they see him again, hope will be restored in their lives. All their hopes and dreams that seem to be crashing down will be reignited. They will be reformed into hopes and dreams that are now conformed to the will of God and conformed to the gospel. And so when we take these verses, when we take this text, and we apply it to our lives, we must be careful. It's not bad, but what is meant here is not that G- to, to make us look forward necessarily to Jesus coming again in the last days, but to rejoice in who Jesus is now. That Jesus has rose again from the dead. That Jesus is alive. 
It's true that we as believers will rejoice when Jesus returns on the last day. But this text is pointing us to the resurrected Jesus. And that we, like the disciples, we can now rejoice in the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. We can now rejoice because he lives as our mediator. Yes, we need to be longing for Jesus to come again. We need to be forward-looking Christians eagerly awaiting the day when our Savior will return. But Jesus is also showing us here that there's much rejoicing to be done today as well. If you are in Christ, if you have been born again, there is much to rejoice about today. You have a Savior who did not remain in the grave. He is alive today. His Spirit is with you. He has sent the Holy Spirit to to dwell in you, to guide you. So that you will now live out of Him and for Him. As believers, we do not need to wait for glory to rejoice in the Lord. But every believer... We can, we can all rejoice in Him now. Now the disciples' joy here, you'll notice, just isn't about seeing Jesus again. I want you to pay particular attention to this. I want you to notice the words that Jesus uses in this verse we're about to look at. In describing their joy and the illustration that he gives about this joy. Jesus says in verse 20, your sorrow shall be turned into joy. He connects their sorrow with their joy. He doesn't say here that you will have sorrow and and then you will have joy. It's not two separate things. It's sorrow that's turned into joy. And then notice the illustration that Jesus gives here. It's an illustration you're familiar with, you've heard before. It's the illustration of a woman giving birth. Jesus says in verse 21, A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. The one act, the one act of giving birth is both a source of sorrow, of great sorrow, but it's also a source of great joy. Jesus here is pointing to the suffering, he's pointing to his suffering and his death. The disciples would weep and lament upon seeing their Messiah arrested and brutally beaten and killed on the cross. What was done to their Lord was wrong on every level. It was horrendously evil and wicked. So wicked. It was such a wicked act that sinful men should take the perfect God-man, abuse him so horribly and brutally kill him on the cross. The disciples are right to weep and lament over this. They're right to recognize the great wrong that has been done to their Lord. To be sorrowful over it. Yet this same event is great cause for joy. This is what Jesus is is illustrating here. The disciples will not only be joyful because Jesus has returned, but because he willingly for them bore the wrath of God and died on the cross for their sins. He paid the price for their sin so that now they did not have to. And so we too, as we reflect upon 
Jesus' work, as we think about what he's done, can have these double emotions as well. Soaring over the unjust and terrible price our Savior had to pay for our sin. Because of my sin, this had to happen to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet at the same time rejoicing because Jesus willingly went to the cross to cover my sins with his precious blood. And Jesus is making it very clear in this text that this joy, this rejoicing, it's not something that's limited for heaven. It's something that we can do now while we expectantly wait for the day of glory. Jesus is telling his disciples here that they will rejoice and that no one will take away their joy. That the joy of seeing Jesus resurrected, the joy of knowing he's alive, combined with the joy for what he did for them on the cross, is a joy that should not go away. And so it is with us. Those of us who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us who cannot live without Him. We have the privilege. We have the cause to be rejoicing. For Jesus is alive. He is with us and His Spirit is transforming us. He has saved us. He has wiped away all of our sins as far as the east is from the west. Our future is sure and no matter what trial or assault from Satan we face, these facts do not change. I don't want to make it a command I don't want to say here to you, dear Christian, that you must rejoice. I don't want to bring you under bondage, maybe, because you're not rejoicing. But I want to encourage you. I want to show you that you have every reason. You have the privilege. You have the cause. And I pray that God gives you the grace to rejoice even as you go through heavy trials. Look to Jesus. He is everything. He is your all in all. The way, the truth, and the life. He is alive. He is right now praying for you. He has sent His Holy Spirit to to live in you, to guide you, and to comfort you. He suffered and died for you. He will never leave. Or forsake you. Therefore I pray you can say with the psalmist. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. And thy rod and thy staff. They comfort me. But Jesus here promises his disciples more than joy. He also promises them that they will understand what he is saying and that they will have peace. Now, the disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying, not because he used difficult words, but because the things he was speaking about were were foreign to them. So why did Jesus say these things? Why did he say these things to his disciples if he knew they wouldn't understand? Well, let me give an illustration, very simple illustration, to try and explain what Jesus is doing here. Let's say you're a builder who who buys a property. But there's already a house on that property and you come to find out that this house is falling apart. In fact, it's condemned. The foundation and the main supports of the house are are all rotten. Well, the builder must tear down this rotten house before he can build a new one. And this is something that Jesus has been doing throughout 
his ministry, especially in the hearts and minds of his disciples. He has been bringing the gospel. And by bringing the gospel, uh, he's been tearing down the corrupt and rotten thinking at the same time, constructing a more a solid foundation of truth within their hearts and minds. And Jesus, we know, is the Word of God. And He's using His words in the disciples' lives. And they're having an effect. They may not be fully grasping what Jesus is saying, but the Holy Spirit is using these words to to begin to change them. To give them insight into the Gospel. To give them understanding of these words of Jesus. But we also know that when Jesus does rise from the dead, these words come back to them. They recall the words that Jesus said, what he said about himself, what he said about what would happen. Remember and know that and see that these words he's saying, that they are true. And they now begin to understand more. They begin to believe more. This increases their faith and gives them confidence and hope and joy in the gospel. And the disciples will recall the words of Jesus. And it will help them to see the Father as well. They will see his grand plan of salvation. And they will begin to see the Father's love for them. They will come to see and believe the words of Jesus in verse 27 that the Father Himself loves them. But this is also what happens in our lives. This is all what happens in our hearts when the Holy Spirit begins to work in us. He opens our eyes, He opens our hearts so that we too begin to see So that we too begin to understand the gospel. And as we increase in faith, as we walk near the Lord, our eyes are opened more and more to to the riches of the gospel. Our eyes are opened more and more to the goodness and the mercy of our Lord. And sometimes we still struggle. We still struggle to understand the gospel. We struggle to understand the will of God. Sometimes we struggle still to understand why the Lord is leading us down certain paths. But as we walk uh, closer with Christ, as we study and hear His Word, the Holy Spirit opens our minds. He teaches us the ways of God and He gives us wisdom and understanding. And the world looks at these words that we study. They look at the Word of God. They look at the Gospel and to them, these things are are foolishness. But when the Holy Spirit awakens our hearts... When He gives understanding to to our minds, these things that appear foolish become infinitely wise. And not all things would be clear to the disciples. And it's the same with us. In our lives, not everything will be clear for the Lord also wishes us to live by faith. Believing and trusting in Him. Believing the gospel truth that He sets before us. And coming to a fuller understanding of the gospel. Coming with fuller understanding. It's not something that comes by itself. But something else always accompanies it. When the Holy Spirit opens our minds. When the Holy Spirit instructs us. This also brings change in our lives. And we see this change actually displayed before us in these verses. Verses that can sometimes be abused. Jesus speaks 
of the disciples asking the Father and the Father giving them their desires, he says, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now we know that our Lord is not a magic genie. There isn't a formula that we can follow in prayer and then receive whatever our hearts desire. But when the Holy Spirit instructs our minds, He also changes our hearts. When the Holy Spirit works in us, He conforms us and changes us so that we become more like God, so that we are conformed to the will of God. And then when we come in prayer to the Lord, being conformed to God's will and asking things according to God's will, we receive whatever our hearts desire. When the Holy Spirit changes us and conforms us to the will of God, what we desire changes. Our needs and wants change and align more with the will of God. So that when we make our desires known to Him, when we then ask for those things that are according to His will, He grants them to us. And as Jesus makes clear in these verses, He does this for Christ's sake. Because we are asking according to His will and because He, the Father, loves us. Jesus here reveals the heart of the Father. His heart is plainly made known in these passages, especially in this final verse. Let's look at Jesus' final words here. Jesus says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. These are the final words of the upper room discourse. These words aren't only the conclusion of this chapter, but they're they're the conclusion of chapters 14 all the way through the end of chapter 16. Jesus tells his disciples, he engages in this discourse so that they would find peace not in the world not in their circumstances not in themselves but as this verse makes perfectly clear they would find peace in him they will not find peace in their false dreams of a kingdom of sitting at his left hand or his right hand But these disciples will find peace in Jesus Christ alone. And this is the only place that we too will find peace. We will only find it in Jesus Christ. But the good news is that we can find him no matter where we are. No matter what circumstances we are in. Jesus Christ is completely accessible. There's nowhere that we can hide from Him. If we're in the deepest valley or on top of the highest mountain, Jesus is there. And when you are facing cancer treatment, He is there. When your body is failing and you're getting older, He is there. When you are going through relationship or financial trouble, He is there. When your sin is overwhelming you, He is there. When you're celebrating your wedding, or a birth of a child, or success at work, He is there. So look to Jesus Christ, not only for your salvation, but for life. And in every circumstance of your life, look to Him and you will find peace. For your soul. Find peace in the middle of tribulation. Jesus is saying here to his disciple in this verse that they will have tribulation in this world. And in the middle of this tribulation, they can find 
peace in Jesus. So look to Jesus. We can have peace. And we can be of good cheer because though we face tribulation from the world, we know, as Jesus says here, that he's overcome the world. The original actually says, and it says in the Greek actually, he has conquered the world. He has defeated evil. He has conquered sin. Therefore, we can in our present circumstances rejoice in our Lord in our Savior, and in our God. Jesus said a lot of things in the upper room. Three chapters, 91 verses of speaking. He did this several hours before he knew he would shortly suffer unspeakable things. And as verse 33, as this verse tells us, he spoke these words so that when he's gone, his disciples would be able to reflect on his words and and have peace. It's amazing to think of Jesus while anticipating his great suffering, speaking all these words, not thinking about his own comfort, but thinking about his disciples, thinking about them and what they're going to go through. And though we do see here he chides his disciples for their slowness to understand, Jesus did not turn them away, but he encouraged them and pointed them to to their only hope himself. In the closing verses of chapter 16, Jesus speaks of them also scattering, of them forsaking him, of them running away and leaving him alone. This is done. This happened so that these disciples, they, not one of them could claim to be a good disciple. Not one of them, when Jesus returned, could go up to Jesus and say, I'm the good disciple. I'm the faithful disciple. I'm the one who should be sitting on your, your right or your left. Not one of them could boast how they stood with Jesus and defended him against his enemies. But did Jesus forsake them? Did Jesus turn away from them? No, he came back for them. He found each individual one of them. He forgave them. He restored them. He brought them back into fellowship with them. With him. And now what happens in the disciples' lives? They've just experienced Christ's forgiveness. They've just experienced the gospel. And now the disciples begin to understand what Jesus has always been talking about. Now they begin to understand this forgiveness he's talking about. Now they begin to understand the gospel. Because now they're experiencing it in its fullness. They're now experiencing the love of God for wretched sinners. Wretched sinners who do not deserve it. Who have done nothing to merit it but who have only received it freely from their Savior. This is the gospel we find so difficult to understand. This is the gospel we find so difficult to believe. Dear sinner, Jesus comes to you day after day and He offers you this gospel He offers you freely the forgiveness of sins. There is nothing that you have to do. There is no work you must perform. As Jesus freely forgave His disciples, He offers this to you. 
This is the gospel. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. Do you not want to worship Him? Do you not want to serve Him? Do you, do you not want to live your life for Him? Oh, come. Come find this Jesus. Come find Him and find peace for your soul. Amen. Our faithful Lord in heaven, Lord, we are astounded at thy gospel, at thy grace and mercy to sinners. And Lord, we pray that all of us here would would see this, that thou, Holy Spirit, would open all of our hearts and minds to, to not only understand the gospel, but to believe it. Lord, don't keep us mired in our sin and in our unworthiness, but open the heart, thy heart to us. Overcome hard hearts. And Lord, go before us in this week. Walk with us. Instruct us from thy word. Help us to continually grow in grace. Grow in our understanding of thee and thy word. And help us to live out the gospel in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.